You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Today with special guest host, Graham Richardson. Happy Tuesday, everyone. Great to have you with us. Hope you're having a good day. Uh, We are going to, we've got a lot on the show today, even though it's summer doldrums. It's not really summer doldrums. Um, We've got a fascinating account in Pakistan. We spoke to a reporter earlier today uh, who is on the, I say on the ground there, is actually in a boat there. It is extraordinary what that country is going through. And um, I I know it's a long way away. And I think that, uh, you know, psychologically in North America and Canada, um, you know, when it, the further away it is from our own zone of sort of experience, the less engaged we are with it. It just, the physical distance and also um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, And I don't want to get too deep into that, but uh, listening to this man speak about what he has seen with his own eyes over the last few days, few weeks, actually, this has been building. Um, It is extraordinary. He talks about millions of people homeless, thousands of people just sitting on the roofs, people scrambling to find road that is high enough and not washed out. And I said, so they're just camping there? And he said, they don't have camps. There are no tents. There is no shelter. They're under open sky. Um, It's just a truly desperate situation. I want you to hang in for, and we will be speaking to him shortly. We're also going to delve into the latest on Canada's real estate market across the country. And the correction that TD is now guessing will happen as of, I believe, January of 2023. Uh, They are talking about a significant correction, 25% drop in price from a a year ago, January, to this January. What does that mean for people who bought just a few months ago? Um, And what about the bottom? Are we at, are we get? does TD think we're going to be at the bottom at that point? Or um, does anybody really know? Before we get to all of that, um, we spent a lot of time yesterday on the Freeland harassment story. The man at the center of it, Elliot McDavid, has now responded on TikTok. Um, of course, not apologizing. Uh, This, if you've been under a rock or haven't been paying attention to the news lately, he essentially backed uh, Freeland into into an elevator, called her all sorts of horrendous names and told her to get out of the province, which, by the way, she grew up in, and told her to, she had no business being in Alberta and that she was a traitor and all sorts of other nasty things. Here's, uh, Here's his take on things from his TikTok account. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you one thing, and I ain't no coward. You know what that, you know, you know, when you watch people destroy this country for, for five, six, seven years, however long those clowns have been, 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 uh, been, uh, you know, ruining the country. I mean, uh, of course I'm going to get excited and, and I'm passionate about the country. I care about the country. I care about what our forefathers fought for. Yeah. Okay. Here's another part of what McDavid had to say. And I'll tell you one thing. Those sons of might be able to might be paid. And they'll bend over backwards and drop to their knees. But I won't do that. Nobody can pay me. I'm not a coward. I'll stand up for this country and stand up for what's right. 
Okay, I, I don't know what he's talking about there. People who bend over and drop to their knees, assuming he's referring to paid uh, media shills like us who just, you know, go really easy on Trudeau, except for SNC-Lavalin, Afghanistan pullout, chaos at the airports, uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould, um, the trip to Tofino, um, his India trip. But yeah, yeah. And he's at 30 some odd percent, 31% with a minority government. But he's got an easy ride from us because our parent company took pandemic money, like hundreds and thousands of other companies. And so he's telling us what to report. That's the, that's the lie they're peddling. It's a lie. Um, here he is, final clip from him about kind of what he, the reason for what he did. The coward of the cottage can go back into hiding, and Freeland can go back to the Ukraine. I mean, uh, she speaks fluently Ukraine, yet she said she says she she doesn't. They can all they can all they can all just take a take a boat ride out of this country, and uh, and I and I think the whole country would be happy that they did it too. Then who's next? Then who's next? Who else should get on the boat and get out of the country? So he says Trudeau and Freeland should leave the country, Canada. They're Canadian citizens. So, look, I don't want to, because we've spent so much time on this guy over the last 72 hours, that, that's essentially his justification for doing it. He hates liberals. He hates the government. He's fed up, and he's going to stand up for what our forefathers stood up for, I guess. And that entitles him to corner the deputy prime minister, call her the C word, call her the B word, Call her a traitor and tell her to get the F out of Alberta. Sorry, Elliot. Organize yourself, get behind a party, and vote them out. If you think and others listening think that it's acceptable to be chasing them down and screaming at them and throwing stones at them, let me tell you a story, and I've told it before on the air. John Baird a dyed-in-the-wool conservative who I've known and covered for years. When he was Minister of Social, uh, I think it was Social Services back then, in the Ontario government during the Common Sense Revolution, all of the left-wing unions and teachers were surrounding the legislature over significant changes the government was bringing in over uh, Mr. Harris's rolling back a lot of what Bob Ray did. This was the Common Sense Revolution in the late 90s. He said to me that, and he'll say it again if you ask him, every time there were protests that interfered with his ability to get into the building or people were screaming and shouting at him or people were chanting, his numbers went up. Harris's numbers went up because Ontarians in particular and Canadians don't like that crap. I don't believe things have changed significantly where a significant portion of the population thinks it's good to be screaming in the face of politicians. Now, has the the group that are so opposed to this government and so angry at this government, has that group grown over the life of Trudeau's governments? Plural? Yes, it has. Have they become more significant, a more significant force politically? Yes, they have. I don't accept they're a significant political force yet. Don't get me wrong. They are a factor. P- 
Pierre Polyev wouldn't be hitting the notes he's hitting and striking the tone he's striking successfully if if people who believe what Elliot believe were insignificant. They are significant. I just don't think they're the majority of the country still. And I think the majority of the country is appalled. Even those who would never vote liberal is appalled by what he did and the way he treated Christian Freeland. That's the final word for me on that. I just think it's, I think it's when we start debating and well, you know, it wasn't really assault. It was just, she can't take it. It was a few words. That's, that's not the point. And it was more than a few words. His physical presence, uh, he was threatening her. He was threatening her. It's, it's, it's clear on his own video he was threatening her. Get the F out is not normal discourse in this country. Go back to Ukraine. What's he talking about? What is, she grew up in Alberta. Like, what is, what is he talking about? The Alberta I know doesn't disqualify people for how they vote. You know, like it's a conservative province, our most conservative province, but a lot of libertarians live there. And it's like, don't ever tell me what to do just because I don't vote the same way you do. That's what Trudeau's harshest critics say about him. So that's the final word on this sordid, pathetic chapter, tiny chapter uh, for us anyway, not for Miss Freeland in Canadian politics. I'm Graham Richardson. This is The Evan Solomon Show. We're going to be back in just a moment. It's the Evan Solomon Show with special guest host Graham Richardson on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back, everybody. Glad you're with us. No matter where I go in the country this summer, um, it seems that uh, real estate affordability, of course, are on everybody's minds and uh, filling up the conversation. And um, I always, whenever I, you know, I travel, I like to check, you know, like, what's it cost to live here? And Increasingly across the country, it's the same story. It has been over the last couple of years that uh, it, it keeps going up. Prices keep going up. Now we're in a situation where things are going the other way, which, by the way, is a, a sort of a natural thing in the real estate market in terms of price anyway, that it, it go, it's cyclical. It's supposed to go up and then come down. Last 25 years, generally speaking, with the exception of a few blips, it's gone up, up, up. TD Bank now putting out their forecast yesterday saying that they are expecting up to a 25% drop in Canadian home prices by early 2023. That's over the course of a year from the peaks they were at. Um, Is that necessarily, is that a crash or a correction? Rishi Shandi is the, uh, one of the authors of the, report and joins us on the line. Rishi, thanks for being here. Appreciate it. Hi, Graham. Thanks for having me on the, uh, on the show. Um, tell me about this. Do you, you down aside from the headline, which of course people like me and everybody else pays attention to inside the report, you are saying that this kind of returns it. It is a recalibration pre pandemic. If you take out that soaring artificial couple of years where 
where up was down in the real estate market. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, I think so. I think that you hit the nail on the head there. Um, so even if prices were to fall 25%, say, from 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 sort of their, their first quarter peak there um, through the, the first part of 2023, that would only retrace retrace a portion of the near 50% run-up that we saw in Canadian average home prices over much of the pandemic. So it's again, it's, it's we're calling it more of a recalibration in the market rather than something a little bit more severe. So um, the, the the steep headline drop does mask the fact that we're you know it's it's that's only one one half of the story really. Right. So if you're sitting there three years ago, you bought your home and you watch it soar up in value. Um, it's not going to soar back to what it was four years ago or five years ago. It's going to uh, you think it's going to come down to a point that would make it more of a natural growth in price as opposed to the uh, extraordinary growth we saw during pandemic? Yeah, some, something like that. Maybe even more, maybe even higher than that, actually, uh, to be honest. Um, mm. I, if you sort of drew a trend line from, you know, I assume the pandemic didn't happen and you drew a trend line from where prices would be to where where they are now with no pandemic, you'd probably, the, the price level that we think will will, will kind of take hold would probably be maybe even a little bit above that trend line. So, so that, that would be, that would be, that's that. Yeah. So if you're trying to get in, like so many young people believe, you know, that they're never going to get in. Now we're in a situation where they're trying to, they're trying to pick a bottom um, mm-hmm. or, you know, I know that's extraordinarily difficult to predict, um, but, but it doesn't appear that prices are going to fall um, extraordinarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's right. Yeah, it's again. Our, our forecast is for twenty five percent peak to drop decline, which would retrace, um, you know, the, the you know portion of that big increase. And there's a lot of factors that we think are are sort of underpinning or should underpin sales and prices. So we've articulated a you know a fair amount of them in the report. But basically, you know, our baseline view for the economy is that, that we're going to have kind of you know we're, we're going to kind of muddle along, and we're not going to you know have a severe recession or anything like that. That's our baseline view. And in that environment, I mean, you can have pockets of positive income growth. That's helpful. Population growth is extremely robust. That's a certainly a you know a, a tried and true Canada story, and it's you know it's holding true at the moment. Um, you know, the demographics of the country, just age distribution, are are are, are uh, you know uh, favorable for for housing demand. So by that I mean the share of the population aged from about 25 to 40 years old is on the rise. And that's typically when ownership, demand for ownership housing uh, rises, at least it's historically so. Um, and, and, you know, even with the, the severe correction that we've seen in, uh, in, in housing markets, both new and resale inventory levels are still quite low. <laughs> uh, so markets are, housing markets are still quite tight. So beyond sort of a near-term correction, there are some more, uh, you know, fundamental factors that, that argue against something more severe in terms of, in terms of a drop. I, I was young, but I do remember, you know, late 80s, early 90s, uh, very difficult to move houses, interest rates very high, nobody renovating because it was so cost uh, so costly to borrow. Um, I appreciate there's there are difficult there are difficulties comparing periods. Um, we are getting closer to something like that, but but there's a lot of variables in there uh, in 2022 as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, that, that's funny because we actually we calculate an affordability metric, which is, uh, you know, which we use to help inform our analysis. And, and you're right. We are kind of cre- we, we had been sort of creeping up and we are kind of creeping up uh, to those sort of late 80s, you know, uh, uh, peaks uh, in terms of when it was really, uh, you know, unaffordable in terms of housing because interest rates were in the double digits and the like. So so we are get, we are getting there. Um, the, the thing is, is that prices are falling now. Right. So, so that'll help. 
you know, stay or, or help, uh, you know, affordability or at least offset the, the increase in interest rates such that affordability um, improves a little bit according uh, according to our forecast. So, so we do think that we're not going to get we're not going to surpass the tough period that we saw in the late 80s when interest rates were in the double digits. It's getting there. Uh, but because prices are falling, that's going to offer a bit of a relief. But it's not like we're going to go back to, you know, 2003, 2004, when affordability was was really excellent, uh, you know, across Canada. Yeah. And back then, we all thought Toronto and Vancouver were crazy and it was so expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's difficult. Like, I remember people back in that period of time saying Toronto in particular was still a bargain comparing it to other cities like New York, Paris and London. And my mm-hmm. reaction, of course, I grew up there. It's not New York, Paris, and London, <laughs> but in terms of price, uh, and in terms of uh, in terms of amenities, and you know, a major big city. If you compare it to other major big cities back then, it was much more affordable than they were, and it no longer is. Right. That's right. Yeah. Toronto is is, is one of the, the 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 least affordable cities in the whole world, and of course. You've got to remember that that you know I, 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 part of this part of this affordability equation, and I think I'll talk about it a little bit is income. So you know you have prices and you have interest rates and those factor you know into monthly mortgage payments, but but also income levels matter a lot uh, with respect to how much you know how much mortgage a person can carry, of course, right? So um, you know our our growth forecast, uh, you know as I mentioned before, sees growth sort of muddling along and that in, in you know sort of. Uh, flattish, I'd say overall, um, and, and in an environment because labor markets are so tight at the moment, you can see pockets of positive, positive income growth there. So it's, so it's a, you know, there's it, it could be worse in our baseline forecast from an income growth perspective, and that actually helps uh, improve uh, affordability in, in our view as well. Rishi Shandi, thanks so much for uh, for being here from uh, TD Bank and uh, talking about something that's uh, on everybody's mind. Thanks so much, Rishi. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Uh, we're going to continue this discussion after the break. I want you to give me a call. Uh, 1-855-633-1010. You can also text us at 7-1010. The text number again is 7-1010. You can call us at 1-855-633-1010. Um, especially if you're a young person or if you've got young people in your family, are they ever going to own a home? One in four say they aren't. How bad is it out there? And have you given up hope on... Owning a home, has that ship sailed for a lot of people? The, the numbers tell it it has, tell us it has, uh, but I also know a significant number of people, a handful actually, who are, are renters and are kind of watching this very, very closely, trying to calculate the bottom. Interest rates, yes, are going up, so their costs would not drop dramatically, but the, the amount you have to borrow if prices continue to go down at what point do you jump in? So when we come back after the break, we're going to talk about real estate again and whether Canada is affordable and um, how out of reach it is for people now. I talked about the early 2000s. I've been calling for, I've been predicting that, that Toronto's real estate can't keep going the way it was going. Back in the early 2000s, I thought it was going to correct itself in quotes and, and go down because that's the normal pattern. And, uh, you know... Got that wrong. Got that wrong. You look back at those prices now and you think, wow. Inside 416, those prices compared to now, it's a completely different world. I'm Graham Richardson, in for Evan Solomon. Stick with us. We're back in just a moment.
This is the Evan Solomon Show. Sitting in for Evan, here's Graham Richardson on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Great to have you with us, everyone. No matter where you're listening in the country, uh, home ownership, the cost of real estate, of course, is a major concern. It used to be that it was our big cities, particularly Toronto and Vancouver, uh, that drove this discussion. I also remember a time in uh, southern Alberta where Calgary was booming and everybody was everybody was into the real estate game and speculating and everybody had rental properties and then that went bust, uh, as only Alberta can, it seems, and they're heading back up with the price of oil. Um, different, different things at play in Alberta. Um, but I, I think what's interesting in the last couple of years has been the broad and deep and uh, universal uh, increase in the cost of materials and housing across the country um, in uh, smaller places. Uh, friends of mine um, said they were talking to somebody who could no longer afford to live in Hamilton. Um, nothing against Hamilton, but Hamilton is a great place. But it was always a place where uh, if people couldn't afford Toronto, they would bail and go to Hamilton. Now Hamilton was too expensive. Um, and I think you're seeing that in places all over the country where the outlying areas um, were caught up in in quite a frenzy of movement as people worked from home, avoided the office, got more flexibility at work, and it drove prices everywhere. So we're asking today, especially after our last caller, our last interview uh, with TD Bank, talking about um, the drop in home prices uh, by about 25% by early 2023, um, if you missed it, uh, uh, Rishi Sandi Rishi, Rishi with uh, TD was saying that, look, it's not, going to, it's not going to be below what it was pre-pandemic. This is more of a correction from the crazy highs of pandemic. And if you take it all the way back to pre-pandemic, you're still up if you own a home, if you own a home. So we're asking you to give us a text at 71010 or give us a call. Um, Tell us whether you've lost faith. Do you think that you're going to be able to own a home? Or is this the cyclical nature of it? And is this something that everybody has gone through? And this is no different from other times. I think this feels different. Some of your texts. Um, Mark from Mississauga, a 25% drop in home prices won't even be a correction. At that level, it will still mean you have to be upper middle class to afford a home in Southern Ontario. The chronic shortage in supply has not gone away. It still lingers. Therefore, the upward pressure on prices will return. There is something to that. And by the way, Trudeau right now in Kitchener is announcing a multi-billion dollar project to build 17,000 homes across the country. Where they are, when they'll be built, will be in the details. Um, He is in front of a lectern right now, more affordable housing. Um, It just seems like this is such a big problem that governments can do certain things, but nothing quickly, like nothing to help people trying to get in right now. Listen to this text we just got in. Hi, Graham. My 27-year-old daughter and her fiancé have a deposit for a condo, but it's the cost beyond the deposit. Legal fees, two land transfer taxes in Toronto. Yeah, that's a beauty, eh? The double land transfer tax. 
Um, the condo maintenance fees, the cost of parking, not included, if not included, utilities. While they have a healthy deposit, it's a matter of affording the monthly expenses, which they can't do. So they rent for now. They're not stressed about renting. I think it's the older generation like myself who want our kids to be homeowners. Totally agree with that. The only thing I'll say about renting, and I rented for a good chunk of my life, uh, but being, I'm 52, and we bought our first house when I was was 25. And by the way, from 25 to 52, every market I've been in for my lifetime has increased, which is unusual. But I hear you on renting. The notion that all of those costs wrapped in is still a good thing. Um, That's if everything's going in the right direction, up, right? You'll eat those costs and then you'll build your equity and you'll be able to get a larger house, get more equity, borrow against it, renovate that house, all those sorts of things that are good with home ownership. Only happening, of course, as the market goes up. Thanks for your text. One more text, and then I'm going to take a call from Sonny in Richmond Hill. He's on the line, but I want to just read this one text here. The big difference between now and the early 90s is that there is no supply now. Prices are not affordable, primarily because the lack of plans um, to land Canada. It's a big country, but we have relatively small areas to expand housing at this point because everyone is cramming into the population centers, and this is keeping prices very high. There's lots of room out there. Fair enough. There's lots of room out there. But this person's saying none of, not, not enough of it is being developed. We're all crowding around our cities or in our cities and around the border, and they're not making more land, the old line in real estate that they still say. Uh, Sonny's been patient from Richmond Hill. He's on the line. Hi, Sonny. Thanks for calling in. Um, what about Richmond Hill and the price of Toronto in, in Toronto, north of Toronto and places like Richmond Hill? Do you think it's going to go down more? Oh, there's no, Sonny. it's not. Yeah. Hi, Sonny. Sorry about that. Go ahead. The problem that we have, in my opinion, is that we have to be honest about what has happened. You referenced uh, the late 80s, and, well, I would say since 1984. Yes. When the interest rates went up to excess of 20%. And the problem that I foresee is that supply, like the text says, is outstripping, uh, sorry, the opposite way. Demand is outstripping supply. Yes. And we have to ask the question, why? Because it's in my, I, I, I look at this, I can talk to you the whole day about this. What we have to go ask is, hey, what is the municipalities doing in terms of development uh, 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 approvals? Number two, what is the, development, uh, the, the, the municipalities doing in terms of development costs? I'll give you this example. If you ever can acquire a piece of vacant land, do you know what the development costs are if you as a single individual wish to build a house on that uh, vacant land? I do not. I bet you they're excessive. It ast- it's astronomical for an ordinary person to, uh, to, to uh, attempt that project. Mm. So we have to be honest. You, you look at it, today we are finding... People are renting for a two-bedroom. You're paying excess of $2,000 a month. And if you really want to look at it, uh, that $2,000 a month is a, a strain on people getting another house or, or yeah. a house of their own. Saving up, because, yes. 
The rent they, is excessive. They, they yeah, it's a cyclical thing. Yeah, they caught in a trap. But let me also say something. What my dad taught me. Bricks and mortar never depreciates. Bricks and mortar, Bricks and mortar never, never depreciates. depreciates. Yes, because over the time period that you are in a house, like you quite correctly said, every house that you lived in and bought has appreciated. Yes. So, But that's, that's not normal, Sonny. That's not normal. No, it's normal. You think it's, it's normal. normal? Yes, because if you look at it, over a period of time, let me use this example. Okay, you. you know what? Let me before I before I let you continue, and I will. Um, I, I should correct myself. I have not seen any dips in value. Like normally, through my life in twenty five years of home owning homes, you would see more down and then back up, down and then back up. Generally speaking, the last twenty five years, it's been one direction. Is my point? Go ahead, Sonny. Yeah, because if you look at it. Um, let me use an example. When I came to this country 40 years ago, somebody at Byway, for instance, was earning roughly $3 an hour. Yes. Take that to today's time, right? Yeah. Or, uh, not to actually today, say pre-pandemic, because the pandemic plays a big role in also why we have a shortage of housing and materials uh, and everything else. Okay, Sonny. We have to... I'm sorry. It's a great discussion. I'm out of time. You've made some great points. I want to thank everybody for their text. I hate cutting people like Sonny off. Uh, We're out in five seconds. When we come back, the story in Pakistan. Stay with us. The Evan Solomon Show continues today with special guest host Graham Richardson on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. If you've been paying attention to what's going on in Pakistan, it has been a horrendous situation for thousands and thousands of people. Um, It's been described as a monsoon on steroids. Flood warnings are, in effect, all over the country. Hamid Mir is the Washington Post global opinions contributor in Pakistan. We've reached him in Sukkar, one of the most affected areas. Water has risen more than 10 feet. And I understand, Hamid, you're traveling by boat. Can you tell us about the situation where you are now? Yeah, thank you very much uh, for talking to me. I started my journey for uh, reporting this flood from the northern areas of Pakistan. And there are uh, high peaks and mountains. And uh, in the mountain areas, uh, I started my journey four days ago. And uh, there was a lot of devastation there. But the situation is... uh, very, very serious uh, when I reached to the Sin province yesterday because in most of the areas of the Sin province uh, uh, on the both sides of the river Indus, uh, thousands of uh, villages are drowned. There is uh, water uh, level uh, from uh, 7 feet, 8 feet to 12 feet. And uh, the majority of uh, the the villagers, uh, they are... uh, uh, now staying on the rooftops uh, of their homes because they cannot uh, uh, walk in the waters because the water level is uh, from 8 feet to 12 feet. And, wow. uh, and uh, thousands of the cattle, including buffaloes, uh, cows, goats, uh, camels, uh, they are killed. 
So the situation is uh, uh, very, very grave here. Thousands of people have been killed and and about uh, uh, more than seven, seven million people are homeless. So seven, I, sorry, I, sorry I, Hamid. Seven million people are homeless? Yes, seven million people are homeless because uh, uh, and, and the most uh, uh, serious thing is that in most of the areas, the, the state institutions or the relief workers, they cannot reach in those areas because they are short of resources. Yesterday, I reached to some uh, villages uh, who were totally underwater and the people uh, who were there, they, I spoke to them on the, from their rooftops. I was uh, on the boat. And I was able to speak to them, and the, my level, the the, the water level was uh, just uh, uh, equal to the rooftops, and most of the the rooftops were were collapsing. I spoke to some today again. I I used a motorboat, and I reached to some areas uh, uh, in the Sherpur district of the Sin province, and there I I reached to some of the villages. Uh, which which are underwater since last uh, eight to ten days, and uh, they never received any relief uh, uh, work or any 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 relief goods. They need tents, they need food. But uh, I I met uh, hundreds of people today who never received any relief from uh, any government agency. They're on so their the own. And, very and they're on their own with seven million people homeless. You say you've seen yes, people. Yes, there are more on, than seven the... million people homeless, and the affected, the affected are uh, more than uh, more than ten million. And if uh, uh, <clears throat> you come here and you can see that uh, the people are sitting on the roads because some of the roads they their their level is above uh, <clears throat> eight to ten ten feet. So that's why most of the roads are broken, but those roads which are still uh, uh, not broken, they, these roads have become uh, the relief camps uh, of uh, uh, the, the flood affected. People are just camping on the roads that are left because they're on higher ground. No, they don't have camps. They don't have camps. They are just, they are just uh, staying on the roads and there is open sky. There is, they are, they are, they are staying under open sky. They, they don't have camps. They don't have tents. Oh. <clears throat> it sounds and like they need tents and they, they need food. I was just going to say, it sounds like an incredibly desperate situation. What is the biggest need? Yes, is you it, see, is this is a, basics? this is a very, uh, this is a very un, uh, unforgettable experience of my journalistic uh, life because since last two days. Uh, uh, I am moving the, in the cities of Pakistan. I am moving in the villages of Pakistan on roads. So the the river uh, Indus is everywhere. The the the, the river Indus water is uh, uh, spreading like uh, a fire. Mm. What um, what what can government do about it? It sounds like they've been completely the, overwhelmed. You see. You see, the government is short of resources, and uh, even the Pakistani media. I think the Pakistani media uh, don't have the capacity to to cover this biggest ever natural disaster in the history of Pakistan, because millions of people uh, are homeless. This actually, this uh, this uh, climate crisis actually started two months ago when some glaciers uh, were melted in the northern. Uh, 
mountains of Pakistan, uh, and you know India and Pakistan, uh, they they have deployed their troops uh, on the mountain peaks uh, of the Sachin, and uh, the presence of uh, the uh, the heavy military uh, machinery on the mountain uh, tops uh, on the glaciers it is creating problems for the environment and the glaciers are melting so uh, many lakes in the northern part of pakistan were exploded more than 30 lakes were exploded so those exploded lakes released a lot of water the water came in the indus river and then uh, the rain started so the the level of water was multiplied and slowly and gradually that uh, water entered in different cities of Pakistan and now uh, more than half of Pakistan is underwater. So actually this is a, this is a climate crisis and uh, the, the people of Pakistan and the people of South Asia must understand that they need to uh, make a joint strategy to handle this climate crisis. Wow. What is next for you? Where are you going now? Actually... Uh, I am now stuck in this uh, city of Sakhar because it is also surrounded by the water and the airport of uh, uh, the Sakhar city is not working. It is dysfunctional since yesterday. The three roads uh, from Sakhar to Karachi are closed. And uh, now I have only one option. If I want to uh, continue my reporting, I have to go back to to Punjab province. And from Punjab, I will go back to uh, the capital city of Islamabad, I can I cannot move forward because there is a lot of water and uh, I don't have the uh, the capacity of uh, uh, moving only in the board because I need to report for my TV channel uh, with the DSNG for with the with the satellite uh, equipment. So the satellite equipment cannot move in the boards. So that's why because three main roads are closed, the the airport of the Sakhar city is not working. So I have to go back. And then I will uh, take a flight from Islamabad to Karachi, and from Karachi I will come back to uh, this area again. Hamid, we uh, really appreciate your time. It sounds like just a horrible, horrible situation, and thank you very much for telling us about it. Thank you. That's Hamid Mir, Washington Post Global Opinions contributor in Pakistan. He is describing an absolutely devastating monsoon season where again, he says, at least 7 million people are now homeless. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Today with special guest host, Graham Richardson. Welcome back. I'm Graham Richardson. It's Tuesday. So we're going to talk about drinking. Um, Canada's health authorities essentially have updated the, um, the recommended consumption of alcohol for Canadians, men and women. They've updated them from 2011. Now, back in 2011, it was party time. Uh, they said that um, they recommended no more than 15 drinks a week for men and 10 drinks for women. Um, 
they now say that recommendation, 13 years on, actually increases your risk. And they are suggesting that the new guidance is basically a couple of drinks a week. The, the less you drink, the healthier you are. And that may seem obvious to people. It's not only, um, the report is not only talking about obvious things like cirrhosis of the liver. They're also talking about injuries, um, much more prone to taking risks when you drink heavily, particularly men. The long-term health risk by drinking no more than 10 standard drinks a week for women and no more than 15 standard drinks a week for men with no more than two drinks a day most days. That was the recommendation back in 2011. They now say the risks are much higher and they have to change because the science has changed. They have to change their recommendation. Like for me, um, I, those people who know me, I like the odd drink. Um, and th- this is kind of a sobering message, right? But, but I think if you actually look at the study and move beyond the headline. What they're essentially saying is like, if you, if you walk across the street or drive slightly over the speed limit, um, and the street is busy and the speed limit is, uh, X number, and you're going to go 20 K over the speed limit, your risk for injury goes up. So they're not saying you're going to get ill if you're a heavy drinker, or if you drink more than the guidelines, the the advice is that you are more likely to have problems if your alcohol consumption is higher. I don't know about you. I want to hear your thoughts on this. Seven, ten, ten. Do you listen to these studies? I I remember it was a phenomenon twenty years ago. Um, after sixty minutes, did that famous report comparing heart disease in Americans, I believe, to people in France, and the fact that the red wine consumption in France was higher, was attributed at the time to lower heart disease. And almost overnight, the sale of red wine in the United States went up 20, 30%. And that was one to two drinks a day, if not more. Doctors have now, researchers have now done a complete 180 on that, basically suggesting that if you do that, the other risks outweigh the benefits and that Heavy drinking is has a negligible impact on heart disease. Um, so here is the new guidance on alcohol and health. Um, seven key takeaways, they say. All levels of alcohol consumption are associated with some risks, so drinking less is better for everyone. Among healthy individuals, there's a continuum of risk for alcohol-related harms when the risk is negligible to low for individuals who consume two standard drinks or less a week. It's moderate risk for those who do three to six standard drinks per week, and it's increasingly high for those who consume more than six standard drinks per week. On any occasion, any level of consumption has risks, and with more than two standard drinks, most individuals will have an increased risk of injuries and other problems. So my, my ask is, it, is it safest not to drink while pregnant and during preconception period for women who are breastfeeding, it's safest not to use alcohol. Like all of this is all good advice, you know, like don't, 
but but they are they are branding this as rethink what you drink. And my question, do you listen to this? Or over the last two years, um, have you kind of been fatigued by advice from experts? Um, because it was constantly coming at you. Um, maybe that maybe that's a factor as well. People are going to tune this out. And and I want to point out that this report. Uh, it's by the Canadian Center for Substance Use and Addiction. They are not hectoring and they are not lecturing. They are simply looking at the numbers and they're saying, look, if you do this, your risks are going to go up. Despite what we've heard before, having two drinks or fewer per week will avoid negative alcohol consequences. Now, those consequences may be, maybe you're not a violent person, you don't get angry when you're drinking. It might be a hangover. It might be lack of productivity the next day. Or it could be something more serious. If you have three to six drinks per week, the Centers for Addiction, Substance Use and Addiction say, you are at an increasing risk of developing certain cancers, including breast and colon cancer. If you have seven drinks a week or more, you're actually increasing your risk of developing heart disease or having a stroke. Now, the problem with that is for years, they said moderate drinking, meaning one drink a day was good for your heart or was better for your chance of um, beating heart disease or keeping it at bay. And now they're saying the opposite. And so I I think that's when they're going to lose people. And they say they've um, the science has changed, the information has changed, and they're passing it along. Um, some of your texts, Brad from Burlington used to be an everyday drinker. I'm a chef. So after work beers was a thing six to 12 a day. I stopped December 28th, 2020, and I'm way happier and I feel better. Um, I allow two drinks a month. That's it. I still feel way better and more in control of life. Good for you, Brad. I like, I, I, I don't fault people who make the choice to just stop. I've, you know, I, like I say, I imbibe. I would say on the heavier side at times. And I've, I've, I've gone cold Turkey for several weeks at a stretch, several months at a stretch just to try it, to see if I could do it. And I I hear you also, it strikes me. There's a lot more time in the day because when you wake up without that feeling the next day, it just seems you have more energy. I think, um, They're just trying to relieve the hospitals. Drunk people get hurt every day and end up in emergency rooms, Mike. I think it's more complicated than that. They've been working on these for years, Mike. Um, And this is not about the current situation, but you're right. Uh, People who drink heavily do do get uh, injured more and they do cause more problems for the healthcare system. There's only one piece of sage advice I follow. Moderation is key. That's from Al. Um, good point, Al. Yeah, sure. If you're if you're moderate in your drinking, um, and and they're not saying these are guidelines, right? It's kind of like the food guideline. Like if you have this amount of eggs and this amount of cheese, and I mean, I don't know about you, but I can't check that every day. I have no idea if I'm inside the food guide in terms of the amount of carbs and veggies I'm supposed to get. I just kind of watch what I eat. I watch my weight and I try to fuel my body as best I can. And I try to cut junk food as much as I can, but I still snack on stuff that I shouldn't. So if somebody looked at my diet, what I eat, they could say, 
okay, we can improve this, we can improve that if you want to stick to it, but you're not killing yourself. I think the same's true with this. I think I think common sense. Like I don't think I don't think the Centers for Disease Control and Substance Use. Um I I don't think they're they're saying don't go to bars and they they're giving guidance and tips on best practices to keep people as safe as they can. <laughs> Chris is on a seafood diet. He sees food and he eats it. That's a ultimate dad joke from the control room. Excellent. Anyway, thanks for everybody for texting in on the new guide on alcohol and what to consume and what not to consume. Take it with a grain of salt. Oh, not too much salt. It's the Evan Solomon Show with special guest host Graham Richardson on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Wow, we are getting a lot of reaction to this, these new guidelines on drinking. Let me tell you a quick story, and we're going to take your calls in a second. Uh, so text us at 71010. Let us know what you think. The new guideline is one or two drinks a week. Anything more than that, um, you're increasing your risk of other problems. I, I, I want to tell you a story. So uh, again, those people who know me know me. Like, I, I don't mind the odd pint. I'm being a little facetious. I like to have a good time. I'm in, an, you know, everybody's in a high-pressure industry, but uh, I, I, over the years, of course, honestly, oftentimes alcohol is a bit of a release. It's a bit of a, a let-loose kind of a thing. And uh, I covered the convoy in here in Ottawa, and I was out in the streets a lot, and there was a lot of abuse and a lot of, uh, everybody knows what was going on. It was pretty intense time. And I, what I found was I couldn't put the story down because it was constantly changing. So I'd go home after the newscast, and I'd sit there in my chair and I'd be staring at my phone for hours uh, because it was constantly changing, constantly people engaging in this, this, this massive story, which before Ukraine, by the way, was the biggest story in the world, the occupation of Ottawa. And I found two to three to four drinks a night, uh, both as a release and a, um, it was happening to me. Like I was, I was doing that quite a lot for those three weeks, four weeks. And I was like, at the end of the time period, I was like, holy cow, I, I you know, I got to watch this. And so I went kind of and, and cut it back. Like, you know, I, I kind of, I'm a kind of an accordion on alcohol. Like, you know, I, um, and, and I can see how, uh, whether it's a release, whether it's an escape, whether it's taking the edge off of a stressful day, it can quickly pile up. And I think these guidelines are basically saying, keep an eye on it, just like your food intake, and you're less likely to get into trouble longer term. I think that's what they're saying. Adam is on the line from Aurora. Thanks for calling in and thanks for holding, Adam. What do you make of these new guidelines when they admit, you know what, we've changed our tune, the science has changed, less, we've got to rethink drink, and less is better. What do you say? Uh, yeah, less is better, just not as often. See, when I was back in my 20s, I could handle a lot, and yeah. frequently too. And I still go to bed, and, still, and I could like stay up for two days, whatever. But then once I started getting in my 30s, I noticed it started really affecting me, like um, my skin, you know, my face. So yeah. I'm getting a little droopy, always tired. And from listening to, like, just say, for example, Dr. Rhonda Patrick, she's got a podcast. She's a scientist. And um, that's where I learned that, um, or not that one, it was, it was another, like, a sleep doctor. But I learned drinking any time at a certain time period, like in the evening, it, it ruins your REM cycle, no yeah. matter what. It disrupts right? your so, sleep. Yeah. So that, that just 
you're screwed. And also, <laughs> so in your thirty, did, did your th- in your thirties, I it was almost like flipping a switch. I found my hangovers were much worse. Yeah, it it depends. If I drink too frequent, then then yeah. But if I don't drink for like a week or two, it's not actually not that bad. It, not it that depends. Bad. Yeah, it so depends d- on what I'm doing, where I'm at, my activity level. Like you know, when I came back from Boots and Hearts, I was out for two days. So yeah, <laughs> but, <laughs> good time at Boots and Hearts. Now listen, uh, yeah. did so? Do you watch? these recommendations or do you, it sounds like you kind of self-policed after your twenties. Um, I just kind of listen to my own body and kind of pay attention and look at myself. The thing too is like, I don't like the way I'm looking right now. So I'm like, yeah, I got to chill. I quit smoking cause that one was really aging me quick. And the drinking starting to do it too. If, when I, if I drink too frequently, I start getting bags under my eyes. I probably shouldn't have till I'm like in my mid forties. Understood. And, yeah. And, understood. You know, and, hey, before I go on uh, you, a little, a little fun fact about that. Um, the wine you were talking about, right? Yeah. The reason they were saying it was good is because there's this ingredient that comes from the grape. It's called resveratrol. Right. That's the most beneficial ingredient. It's really good for you, actually, if you take it as a supplement out of the wine, but that's why I thought wine was good for you. Appreciate the call, Adam. Thanks so much, and good luck with yeah. uh, quitting smoking. Very, very difficult to do, and congratulations. Um, okay, so uh, th- there is Adam, and he's, uh, you know, he's self-policing and he does it based on how he looks and how he feels. Um, here is a text. This, this always freaks me out because I'm fairly physically active, quite physically active. My dad was a teetotaler his entire life. He ran 10 K a day. He died at 57. When it's your time, it's your time. Eat, drink and be merry is my model. I'm very sorry to hear that. That's a very, very young man at just 57. And there, there is some truth to that, that genetics play a role here. Um, and, um, uh, it's, you know, it's, uh, maybe when your time is up, your time is up. But again, I want to say, I want to point out this, this report, um, is not, is not saying you must do this. It's saying, here's, here's what we think reduces your risk. They know people are going to drink more than two a week, but if you want to completely reduce your risk, risk two a week is what they're recommending now. Kevin in Toronto has been quite patient, and I appreciate you waiting, Kevin. Um, what do you make of this uh, of this new recommendation? Are you listening to it or no? Absolutely, Graham. I think, listen, if it was a healthy substance, we would have had it at one years old. Um, let's yeah. be frank. Let's be frank. You can run a car. It's flammable. Um, you know, the co- it's a complex sugar slash... Um, heavy carbohydrates, tough to break down. It, it can't be good good for you in excess. It's just, to me, and it's going to come out more. I, I wouldn't be surprised if they, if they get it to zero. Ah, zero recommendation. You're basically saying alcohol, considering what it does to us, there's no way that that's good for us at any level. Um, and and, yeah. and it's, it's a complex mix, and uh, yes, it's legal, Yes, it's a massive multi-billion-dollar industry, but you, you've also got to keep an eye on it and watch your consumption because it's just like eating, you know, a, three chocolate bars every day for seven days straight. That's not good for you. Neither is three beers. Yeah, this is the problem. It's a heavy, it's a heavy uh, substance, as we know. I mean, geez, if your if your if your consumption level at max is eleven percent, twelve percent in a glass of wine. You know, maybe thirty, forty percent in a glass of whiskey. Uh, you're looking at uh, 
you know, a pretty potent substance that if you are consuming 11, 15, you know, or you go out, you have 9, 10 drinks. It's got to be tough on the organs. Thanks for your call, Kevin. So Kevin pays attention to this, and he thinks it's even going to go lower than one or two. A couple of more texts before we break for um, news here on the Evan Solomon Show. I'm Graham Richardson. We're talking about the new guidelines on drinking. As I get older, I feel that less alcohol in our society is better. The behaviors it encourages, like aggressive behavior, so many deaths from drunk driving, etc. And that's a good point because this report is not just about increase in cirrhosis of the liver and the cancer possibilities. This report is also highlights the behaviors that lead to injuries, the risk associated with that. And that's why they're recommending um, you reduce your alcohol consumption. Another text, LOL, nine feet tall and bulletproof. Been there, done that. Don't like it no more. (laughs) Cheers, Jess. (laughs) I think that means Jess does not drink anymore. uh, And it made him or her feel nine feet tall and bulletproof. And uh, no longer doing that. No longer doing that. The problem is people pick and choose what moderation actually means. No one knows what portions mean either. That's another good point to keep in mind. Are you going to keg size that? When you say you're having one drink, that glass of wine is supposed to be six ounces. Very few people pour six ounces. I've got some wonderful fancy glasses that we bought years ago from a place called Nova Scotia Crystal that's now out of business in Halifax. It was fabulous. And I can count on, I I have never poured six ounces into the Nova Scotia Crystal. When I have the Nova Scotia Crystal, particularly on the dock, it is much more than six ounces. So my point being, it is uh, it is a larger portion. You've got to watch that there. I think there's been a flip when it comes to alcohol guidelines. Society's been heavily integrated with alcohol culturally. But it's due to being grandfathered in. I think it's preposterous to think people aren't going to let loose. They have to. But I think we're just waking up a bit. If alcohol was a new thing, it would have been more difficult than weed to get legalized. Effects on body, attitudes, alcoholism, and abuse, etc. That's all fair. That's all fair. And the other thing is, you look at our popular culture now, our Instagram, you know, the things that the media that we consume, the stories that we read the shows that we watch, and count the number of times alcohol is involved, particularly wine with women. Sometimes, you know, wine country, whether it's Prince Edward County, Niagara, or Kelowna, a lot of people build their vacations around alcohol consumption. And I'm wondering whether that may need to change. I don't know. Hate to wreck your fun. At least it's not a Friday, everyone. It's a Tuesday. This is the Evan Solomon Show. Sitting in for Evan, here's Graham Richardson on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Graham Richardson. Um, memory loss and um, aging and all that comes with it, of course, something that... Uh, deeply impacts millions of people and families across uh, across the world. Uh, Dr. Robert Reinhardt's a lead researcher at Boston University. Um, he's writing about a new 20-minute non-invasive treatment that could reverse memory loss, a new study says. 
Um, Dr. Reinhardt joins me on the line now. Thanks for joining us. Oh, glad to be here. Tell me Thank about you this. For having me. Yeah, tell me about this study uh, because uh, this would uh, this would this grabs a lot of people's attention because um, oftentimes, of course, the uh, the onset of more severe memory loss comes with uh, greater complications for life, and uh, obviously, the, the obvious uh, uh, things that it can lead to, like Alzheimer's. Uh, t- can you tell us a bit about the study? Absolutely. So, as you and your listeners probably know, the brain communicates through these uh, small electrical impulses, and that is the information in the brain is conveyed uh, through these electrical impulses or these brain rhythms. And what we showed is that we can apply uh, extremely weak electrical current, safe and non-invasively. It's alternating current, the kind that comes out of the wall socket, uh, in a very specialized way um, that's keyed to the intrinsic brain rhythms uh, implicated in memory processing, and as a result, control and enhance um, these brain rhythms and their corresponding memory systems, and especially for people with poor cognitive function. Wow. Um, Yeah, it's interesting. It sounds like a simple procedure where they would do it at home themselves? This was in a laboratory context, but perhaps um, in the future, it could be something wearable, um, lightweight, and taken home with a patient. Um, But right now, um, it's really for investigational use in basic science and clinical labs, but potentially if it goes through the proper channels of clinical trials, becomes FDA-approved, it could, it could eventually wind up in a doctor's office where you could take it home. Mm. What, what, what kind of results were you getting? So we're seeing, um, uh, yeah, a little more about the results. So we can uh, electrically stimulate the uh, frontal part of the brain and at a high frequency and see enhancements in long-term memory um, and we could also stimulate uh, further back in the brain called the parietal region, kind of past the crown of the head at a low frequency and see enhancements in short-term memory. This was really important because we've known for a while that space matters in the brain, right? Mm-hmm. There's like little pieces of brain tissue and they correspond to different mental functions. Mm-hmm. But the big like basic science takeaway from our, our work was that frequency also matters, the frequency or the speed of the brain activities. Um, and so we can tune our brain stimulator to different frequencies of alternating current and uh, isolate and augment those brain activities that are implicated in long-term or short-term memory processing. We do it selectively. So we have that kind of flexibility to just improve short-term memory or just improve long-term memory. And another feature of the findings was that the effects could last for at least one, one month. That's what we were finding. Um, so this really kind of lays the foundation for a proper clinical study of people with mm. mild cognitive impairment, right? The precursor to Alzheimer's disease and also those with Alzheimer's disease. So it, 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 um, it, you found that it lasts uh, a month. I, I see in some of the studies, it, uh, certain procedures would last only for a, a shorter period of time. Um, would, would people feel it as you were doing it? Like, what does it feel like? Yeah, so you're, um, we did find that the effects last for a month, and that was 20 minutes every day for four consecutive days of this non-invasive stimulation that target these memory centers in the brain. Um, what happens is you come into the lab, we fit you with these, this elastic cap. It's like a swimmer's cap, and embedded in it are these various sensors, and those sensors deliver the extremely weak electrical current um, that are configured in a way where the current is funneled so to increase 
and it's maximal entrainment of that certain piece of brain tissue. So it has high spatial resolution. Hmm. Um, but you're just wearing this cap. It has uh, sensors or electrodes embedded in it. Um, you feel a slight itching, tingling, poking, warming sensation over the first minute uh, during this 20-minute period. Um, and then your skin habituates to it. So it's really um, minor uh, side effects, if you could even call them that. So the, the most extreme effects are this kind of itching, tingling, poking sensation. Hmm. Um, but then you adjust to it after that first minute or so. Um, and then you can experience these, these memory improvements if you have the electrodes configured in a certain manner um, with the repetitive nature of this intervention with effects that last that we're observing um, out to one month. And um, do you know why it's effective? Yeah, there's a, there's a few ideas based on animal... Um, research and computational modeling and the work we have from humans, um, the mechanism for how it works is called entrainment. Um, so it refers to this temporal locking between the rhythm of the applied stimulation outside the head and the intrinsic brain rhythm inside the brain. Um, that is, the, the electrical stimulation is kind of taking control of the timing of the brain activities. So time is a really important variable in the brain. We've known for Sometimes so the brain is constantly sending and receiving these packets of information at very fast speeds. And the brain rhythms um, are this really exquisite solution that the brain's evolved to have to efficiently coordinate those fast-moving bundles of information that ultimately make up our memories. And, and the people who participated in the study, were they all seniors, or does this help younger people too? That's a great question. Um, they were all seniors, 65 to 88 years old, um, and some with memory complaints, but no formal diagnosis of an age-related um, condition. This could potentially work for younger people. Most of our work is with healthy young adults, um, but then some of our work gets into people with schizophrenia, obsessive compulsive disorder, and age-related cognitive impairment. So, But it's a great question. It's something that we'd like to look at in the future to see if we can see these same benefits in, in a younger population. What's next for this? Well, it's, um, I, I guess I sort of just alluded to it. Um, yep. There's kind of three research threads. We're looking at uh, enhancing various cognitive processes in people with schizophrenia, um, reducing um, anxiety symptoms in people with anxiety disorders, such as generalized anxiety disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder. And then the last thread, the most recent, the one that's most relevant here is um, to port these insights over into a proper clinical trial with people with mild cognitive impairment and Alzheimer's disease, which, like you said at the outset, is devastating and the prevalence is uh, just dramatically rising in people uh, with Alzheimer's disease as the global population is um, aging very fast. Fascinating uh, to talk to you about it. I really appreciate you coming on, Dr. Reinhardt. Thank you. I'm honored. Thanks for having me. All right. Uh, some exciting uh, developments there. Uh, with wide implication. Um, I didn't want to ask him this, but I mean, there's that fear when you're talking about these kinds of things, you know, the old electroshock, is that what this is? And it's clearly not. Um, this is mild, as he said many times, this is mild stimulation that very little side effect uh, over a, a given period of time for multiple days. Um, and that's quite something if memory comes back. Can you imagine? I've had it in my family uh, where uh, memory slips, uh, I, even me, I can feel my, you know, that's why I asked about younger people because, uh, my recall, I think has deteriorated over the last 10 years in a way that I, 
uh, I'm noticing my age, you know, at 52. And so I'm wondering whether, you know, this is not just, this does not just have an implication for people, the most severe side, the seniors who, um, you know, are with, with Alzheimer's, whether there's other applications for this, we'll continue to watch it. Uh, he's out of Boston University. Um, so fascinating discussion there. When we come back, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to wrap up the show with a profound question. Well, not really. When does summer end? When does summer end? How do you define the end of summer? We are approaching, in a couple of days, the month of September. Labor Day is around the corner. Now, those are two markers that I think are fair to say summer has ended. But it hasn't. For you, when is summer over? Text us at 71010. I'm Graham Richardson, in for Evan Solomon. We're back in just a moment. The Evan Solomon Show continues today with special guest host Graham Richardson on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Graham Richardson. A couple of days, it's going to be September. We're heading towards Labor Day. I've just dropped my youngest child off at university. First time, first year. We are empty nesters. Oh my. Many signposts. September, Labor Day, dropping off at school. Those are all signposts that summer is over. I've just been cruising around my uh, my Environment Canada app in the West. Whistler looks spectacular. Friday, Saturday, S- Sunday, Monday, all through Labor Day weekend, mid-20s, clear skies. Their lows around 12 degrees. Does that mean summer's over as lows 12 degrees? Not necessarily in the mountains. A little bit further east in Banff National Park. The Labor Day weekend, again, looks spectacular. Highs of 31, 29, 27, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. But they're low on Saturday night. Banff, 4 degrees. I mean, that's sweater, that's coats, that's, that's, that's cold. But the next day, they're going up to 31. Ontario, it looks like, is going to have a fairly cool Labor Day weekend. Let's pick uh, ah, Prince Edward County out of the big city. Uh, it looks beautiful. Our highs there Saturday, Sunday, 26 with rain Saturday night. And then 22 is the high on Sunday, the Labor Day weekend, and a low of 10. I think if you turn the air conditioning off, that's another signpost. Or if you flip on the um, the fireplace or the furnace, uh, then summer is over. Even when you have those warm September days. I love September, by the way. One of my favorite months. Um, Drew, summer's over when I can't afford golf anymore. (laughs) That's right. You know, when you have to, when I used to be an addicted golfer and I play right through until the snow flew almost, you know, and you have to change the color of your balls because you couldn't find the white ball in the leaves. You know, you had to go to a fluorescent ball. I know lots of people do that. My mother said summer was over when the CNE started. 
That statement brought joy for the ex, but despair for the end of summer freedom. Growing up there, actually working at the ex in a previous life. I totally agree. When, when the exhibition in Toronto started, you knew the clock was ticking. It was getting cooler nights. School was getting closer. And it was a marker that, you know what? It's almost over. So you better have a good time while it lasts. Summer's over when the kids go back to school. The whole atmosphere changes. Yes, it does. Uh, We've got a number of texts on that. Summer's over when the flip-flops go away. Thanks for that, Scott. Like when it gets, like, yeah, you can't, if you're going outside in September, late September, and you got to put jeans on, you can't wear shorts anymore, and it's too cold on the feet to wear flip-flops, which, by the way, is a fabulous fashion statement at any age, especially for the dads out there. Jeans with flip-flops. My kids would just roll their eyes at me. Um, if you can't do that anymore, yes. I also find in the morning when I'm long sleeve and it's cold and you don't have that humid sort of feeling of Southern Ontario or Eastern Ontario when you've got to kind of bundle up for the walk or the ride or the dog walk. That's to me when feels, it feels like summer's over. Now, technically speaking, not until of course the 22nd and people hate this. Like I love the color change. I love fall for a short period of my life. I lived in Los Angeles and everything stayed the same. It was just hotter or cooler. And I missed the change of seasons. I I really did because, and in particular, I missed fall, not necessarily because of the signal, what was coming because, uh, in Los Angeles, winter is not really winter, but, um, you know, that sort of crisp night air leaves have turned, people are in sweaters. It's, you know, pumpkin spice latte. Cause you know, like I, I think Starbucks rolled that out last week, you know, in the humid, in the humidity, have they officially rolled it out yet? The pump, pumpkin spice latte. Oh, the, the, uh, news stories were that it was going up in price. Another mark of inflation. Your pumpkin spice latte is now $8 instead of seven. When football starts, summer is over. Yes, that's a good point. Summer is over when the birds leave. Red wing blackbirds and grackles especially. These uh, red wings are the bringers of spring and fall. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Uh, anybody who watches me locally knows that birds are not my strong point. Uh, Eastern townships in, in Quebec, when the goldenrod blossoms in the big brome fair... Is it the big brome or broom? Brome? Sorry, Nancy. Thank you for that. Uh, yeah, fall fairs, generally speaking, when they start to arrive around uh, Quebec, Ontario, parts of uh, the West as well, that that tells me that that summer is over. With regards to summer and fall, I hope they stop the stupid time change thing sooner than later. Thanks for that, Drew. Uh, yeah, that's the, the time change and the fall back, spring forward. Fall back, of course, is a big signal that, you know what, we're in for the long haul. The other thing, I love Alberta. I loved living in the West, lived there for eight years. I found it very difficult. The short, the, 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 the slow onset of hot weather, warm weather. So sweaters at night in June, generally speaking, I know they're in a heat wave now, which is great for them. And then the quick arrival of colder weather, like snowsuits at Halloween. You gotta, you gotta put the kids in Halloween gear 
um, and you got to wear, you got to bundle up in most parts of the prairies. And I know people in the prairies hate that when I talk about that because they do have Chinooks in Calgary. They do get warmer and sometimes their winters aren't as harsh. I just found, I, and I love winter. I found the late onset of summer and warmer weather and the early onset of those cool nights, like that, that was sort of, that was sort of hard to take, but anyway, everybody will survive. Um, we have a common thread through Canada. We love talking about the weather. We're weather obsessed. Um, <laughs> summer's over when the idiots start talking about making the most of the last of summer. Bring on winter. There's a winter lover. There's a winter lover right there. I don't dread it. I really don't dread it. I love to ski. I love being outside in the winter. I, I just think if you're dressed for all weather, you know, but I, I totally understand people who find it absolutely soul destroying. <laughs> like they find it really oppressive. The cold winter weather, uh, where, you know, you've got, and I found as a parent of young kids, the double bundling up and the trudging to school and all of that stuff that comes with winter can by March be a bit much. Everybody's looking for a bit of relief, but anyway, listen, we've got lots of time left. It is only August 30th. So it's not even September yet. I just thought I'd throw this out there as a topic because we always get a fair amount of reaction. Um, when the roads are clear of motorcycles. Oh, that's another one. Yeah. It, it, when you know the, when you know the motorcycles are, 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 uh, are covered up and, uh, the oil has been drained and they're prepped for winter and they're not on the roads anymore because it's just too cold on the hands, summer's over. So that means you, I mean, you can ride most parts of the country. You can ride right into, uh, I would say mid October, even late October, depending on how much gear you have and depending on the high temperatures. Anyway, like I say, August 30th, lots of, uh, midway rides left fireworks, summer baseball, still school's not open yet for most people. Have a great day, everyone.